The following interview was recorded on Friday, April 22nd, 2022 at the IFS Web Radio Studio. Welcome. Thank you for joining us here on Parkour Ed. I'm Colin Daly. And today I am here with Ms. Claude Chassa. And I will let her introduce herself with the pronunciation that she is the most comfortable with. That's always the starting point here on Parkour Ed. We're never quite sure how to pronounce each other's names depending on what language we're speaking. So what's your name? Right. So I'm actually Claude Frédéric. That's my real name. Your real name? Yeah. Oh, so I got that wrong right no, from the start. It, it's fine. So yeah, I'm Claude Frédéric Chassat, if you're saying it the French way, otherwise Chassat. A lot of kids call me Mrs. Chassat. I see. Interesting. <laughs> so why on your school email or when I tell the students that we're going to see Madame Chassat, mm-hmm. why am I not saying Madame Frédéric? So Is Claude it- Frédéric, I kind of shortened a long time ago. Okay. Because it's just too long. Also, most people think I'm a man. <laughs> ah, I hadn't thought of that. I see. Yes. God, Frederick. So I got rid of this uh, a long time ago when I was a lawyer in my first career. I had the whole thing. Wow. <laughs> um, but yeah, because it sounded I oh, guess, because more formal. So it, was, so it was your given name, your maiden name, and your married name? Is that what it was? Or no, is it, Claude no. Frederick is my first name. Oh, and then, oh I'm Sorry, yeah. Claude Frédéric. Claude Frédéric is I my first see. Name. Now I'm I'm finally catching yeah. up. It yeah, takes no me time. Problem. So Claude Claude Frédéric is your your first, first name. name. That's right. So you got away with uh, C Chassa instead of C F Chassa. Yeah. My wife is Marie José. Oh, nice. But nobody knows it's Marie José. Right. So when they try to send her an email, they can't find her address because her address is M. J right. daily instead of. So it's the same. Yeah. Thing, but she, all right. <laughs> Catching up now, I do understand. Okay, so, Claude. Yes. Claude, and it's not Claudine. Okay. So, In no. English, it would be Claudine, uh, So, probably, right? in English, a lot of my friends call me Claudia, but, which is fine. It's a nickname. I right, don't mind. Right. Uh, people have called me Claudette in the past Claudette. as well. It's funny because nicknames are usually shorter than the original. Yeah, for, Cla- for me. Cla- Claudine yeah. is... Claudine is <laughs> Claudette, all those are longer than Claude. I had issues with my name, I think, for as long as I remember. I was a short, cropped hair little girl, always dressed in dungarees with sneakers, looking very much like a boy, and called Claude. And so when I was about five, I think I had this existential crisis and I wanted my hair to be longer and wanted to wear dresses and wanted to look like a girl. And I didn't want to be called Claude anymore because it sounded like a boy's name. Even though in France it has this really long tradition of being a girl's name, we had a queen in France that was Claude, the Reine Claude. They named a plum after her, right? And a plum after her, absolutely. (laughs) Apparently she was very cruel, but loved her plum. Plums. But when I was growing up, even though these names, you know, boy-girl names were very fashionable in the 70s, a lot of Claude, Pascal, Dominique, Frédéric, which is why my parents couldn't choose, Claude, Frédéric, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, still, I, I was really self-conscious about I having see. this name. And did that have an effect on the names you chose for your own children? Because I know for, for me, being in a Franco-American relationship, the pronunciation, finding something that would go in both, both languages mm-hmm. was fine. So we ended up, we settled on Emma Louise for my daughter, which really goes both ways perfectly. Yes. And then with our son, we chose Leo Alexis or Leo Alexis. And even though they're almost the same, they're not quite the same. And 
even that sometimes can be confusing. But we decided against Pablo. I wanted Pablo because okay. that works in both languages. But yeah. my wife thought maybe a Latino name, yeah. a, a Hispanophone name for a Franco-American kid living in Asia wouldn't work out so well. But anyway, how about for you? The same. We wanted to have the kids with names that would be easy to pronounce in both languages. Camille, we actually hesitated. I wanted Camilla. My husband was more for Camille. That's also a gender-neutral name in yes, France. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Not so much in, in the yeah. United States, but definitely in France. Yeah, in that's France, right. Yeah. Actually, you know, I didn't realize at the time. And maybe, yes, subconsciously, it was there. I had no idea. I, I was pushing for Camilla. We ended up with Camille and then Thomas, Thomas, and Maxime, you know, Maximilian, Maxime. Maxime. Okay, yeah. Maxime also gender-neutral. Yes. Had both. Yes, I've, yeah, you're right. right so. <laughs> Never thought of it. <laughs> Very interesting. A name... It does yeah. say a lot, and people put a lot of thought into names, but we don't always get everything. I know my first name is Colin, which growing up in the United States, people thought I was named Kevin because Colin was uncommon. And then Colin Powell came along, and everybody knew the name Colin, which was mispronounced. Even Colin Powell is named Colin, but he gave up correcting people. Finally, French people started calling me Colin, which to my ears rang as Colleen, which is a girl's name, girl's name. and I didn't like. So I said, please, call me Colin. Coulin, comme right. le poisson. Yeah. But they didn't really like that. But still, in France, I go by Coulin. Yeah. And, then, and in the United States, it's Colin. It's a very famous name, though. Colin is the name of a protagonist in a... In L'écume a, des jours. In L'écume des jours, yeah, exactly. Colin et Chloé. Yeah. 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 So, super famous, it's actually. A, I think it's an old Middle Ages name, diminutive of Nicholas, or, or, or the original basis. But names, they have an effect on us. They have an effect on our students and our kids. And nicknames are another thing that can be cruel. Oh, nicknames yeah. can be cruel. So how is it that you sound American? I never happen? asked the question, <laughs> what are you? Uh, you're a human being. We know you're a human being. But tell us a little bit about your background. Why do you sound so American when you speak English? And why do you sound so French when you speak French? And what other languages do you sound so that in? Go ahead. It's hard even for me to explain. I am French, totally French, except that my family background is actually very German. So both of my parents had one or two parents that were actually German or Alsatian, and they spoke German or German dialect at home. So my parents' mother tongue, for both of them, was actually German. They went to school in, in France, and they made a living in France. They met in France, etc. I was raised in a bicultural and bilingual environment with English and French, I see. Really. With your German parents speaking so English to my, you? Or? No, 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 no. German and French. German no and French. No English at all. No connection. Oh, but how did you learn? Okay, I'll let you tell okay. the story. I'm so listening. the story is, the story is, the story I like to tell people is that I am a failed bilingual child in German and French. Even though I spoke and understood it when I was very small and living with my grandparents, then I went to French schools, kept the German up a little bit. I actually lived in Germany for two years in primary school, but I didn't quite work out. I understand a lot more than I speak. I can have very basic conversations, but I'm definitely not bilingual with German. My whole family is bilingual 
with German. They all live on one side or the other of the border, and they speak both languages fluently. And I'm the black sheep. I, <laughs> German was never my forte. When I started school, regular CZM, coming back from Germany, English just worked very quickly for me. I could just speak it very quickly. And my teachers were just astounded, and they were like, no, how come? And I was like, well, sounds very much like German. I don't know, seems easy, you know, for very basic stuff. Milk, milch, a lot of things are sound, have similar roots. Wow. And I just think my ear was just ready for English. I probably have a good ear, even though I wasn't musical when I was small. I like to sing, but, you know, never properly taught. It was just very easy. Then, for the part you're waiting for, <laughs> when I was 15, <laughs> when I was 15, I went to the U.S. as an exchange student. I think that's when it happened. But 15 is you were already it's in quite, Seconde, right? Yeah, exactly. So your first experience with learning English was in CZM. Uh, yes, I mean, for, for, that's right. Other yes. than some basic things that yeah. everybody learns watching TV Absolutely. or something like that. Absolutely. That's unique and that's very <laughs> interesting to me. So you went to the United States as an exchange student, yeah. you say, in Seconde? Mm -hmm. How long did you stay? A year. A year. And what part of the United States? It was in? Washington, D.C., oh, okay. suburbs, Maryland. Nice. And so from there... <laughs> From there, my life changed. You, you decided changed law. Everything. After spending a year in the nation's capital of the United States, you said, I'm called to law? No, That's no, no, not right away. After that, I went to an international school in France. So, you know, the OIB or the ancestry of the OIB, right. that's what was being taught. I was accepted in the international section there. That was in Strasbourg, Lycée des Pontonniers. And then after that, a lot of people were doing this dual degree with Köln in Germany in French and German laws. And I thought, oh, I'd quite like to do that with English, even though I was always reading books and always drawing too, was uh, quite an artist. But I wanted to see the world. I wanted to travel. And so I thought, oh, you know, if I do law, then I'll be an international lawyer. And this dual degree was going to be in London and in Paris. And, you know, I'll be able to see the world and keep on traveling. I'm saying keep on traveling because I'm also a military daughter. My father was in the military. So we traveled. I traveled. We moved. You moved, <laughs> we yes, moved. as the military so families do. Families so do. was your father in the, in the French military? I, yes, I, I he was it. in French military. I see. And uh, so by the time I graduated high school, I'd probably moved 10 to 12 times already. So I did want to keep on moving, but see more of the world. And it just seemed like the thing to do. So I did Ipokan, which is, you know, this prep school at first because I missed the deadline for this dual degree. And it was a selective program. So I did one year of Ipokan, and then I got in. And I spent then two years in London, two years in Paris, then did master's in international law, and then started working. And I worked for Alcatel for almost 10 years. Then I had my kids. Yes, yes. <laughs> and yeah, I decided to go for a career change. Actually, during my maternity leaves, I took the CAPES in English and then in Agreg, which I failed, but I was admissible. Mm -hmm. And then I guess we were in Brussels. We moved to Belgium by then with my husband and I had the kids they were very small my husband was traveling all the time um didn't quite get around to teaching 
And then we moved here. He moved here for his job, and okay. I followed him. And you've been here since what year? So I've been here since 2011. 2011, so. okay. Mm-hmm. I've had the pleasure of, of working with two of your three children, and they're probably listening. So hi, guys. Mr. Daly here. Nice to see you, or hear you. Well, actually, you're hearing me. Strike that. <laughs> <laughs> so you still have one son who's here, right? That's right, in second. In second. And the others are off and running, being higher education students. So you came to Singapore and you lived here for quite a while before beginning your role at IFS, because obviously you were still working as a mother at home. You had all your kids here. But it's this your second year here now? Or your it's my second year. year yeah. Okay, your second year here. And you are one of our librarians or documentaristes, but your specialty is in Anglophone That's literature right. and running very popular and successful programs like managing the whole Red Dot reading series that we do every year. I have to say that my students love coming to work with you down here at the Trois which in English we know as the Media Center. Obviously, your love of literature and books and reading led you to your career in law, your professional reader as a lawyer. That's what you do for a living. But tell us more about how you came about coming to the French school and becoming a librarian. Yeah, yeah, yeah becoming a librarian. <laughs> how does one do that? that <laughs> uh, well, it's always kind of been a a dream of mine. When I was little, I had my home little library and I had a system. I kind of, you know, reinvented the Dewey system. I had no idea it existed, but I did that at home. Like I was classifying my books and I had stamps for different categories. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. It's so funny. <laughs> and so I always had a love of books. And then when I got a computer, I started inputting my books. I don't know what I was doing, but just playing around and just making lots of book reports for myself and my friends. Started on book groups quite early on at the international school already. I would give English classes to kids who were in classique. Mm-hmm. And then I also had a small book group with my friends, um, book club, if you will. And then I just kind of became a addicted to book clubs, started one. So when I was in Paris and a lawyer, I was also part of this message group, mother support group. It was in English and we would have book clubs. So I was in charge of book club and picking the books and taking turns hosting. When I went to Brussels with a friend of mine, we started this book club as well. And here I guide into museums, the National Museum of Singapore and the ACM, the Asian Civilization Museum. Oh, great. We'll swing back to yeah. that. I want to hear more about that. So the, the book clubs, though, you have book clubs yes, running as out well. of them? So I Exactly. So I started book clubs there as well with my cohort. So every year, a number of people graduate, and I just started book clubs so as a way for us to keep in touch and explore a bit more through literature. So yeah, I do that. And I have so three book clubs actually outside of school. And it's one of the reasons why they, they hired me. I've been doing this for a while. Another reason I think is because I love the arts and culture in general. So I also write the cultural agenda for see, yeah. the school. So keeping a watch on all things cultural is something that I've been doing. I love receiving the newsletter in English in my inbox every week and Thank see you. what's going on around, <laughs> around town, not just on campus, but all over the place. Yeah. How did you get started guiding in the museum? Do you lead visits? or do Yeah, you, yeah, yeah. How, so, how does that work? So I started off with the ACM. I've been guiding for eight years. So it was nine years ago. I was still quite new to Singapore. 
to tell you the truth, at first I didn't think I would guide. I was just really interested in the museum, learning more about Asian cultures, um, meeting new people. It's very international, women and men from all walks of life, all ages, really united by their love of culture and art. And it's a a fascinating program. So Friends of the Museums is the organization that runs it. And so they have a bit of a selective process to start off with, depending on the year they have more or less applications. And the year I did it, they had about 90 applications. So a lot of people interested for the ACM. They could take in, I think, 48. And so they were running applications (laughs) two by two. And I interviewed with someone who became a friend who is Indian and as a result just knows so much more than me about Hinduism. And one of the things we had to do was guide this artifact. They had several pictures of the artifacts in front of us. And they said, well, you get this one and please make a two-minute presentation about this artifact. And so my co interview she started off giving this brilliant presentation about this Hindu artifact. And I thought, oh my goodness, she's in. I'm out. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, then I did my bit, not having any idea what this object was. And with no support, literature, anything? No, no, Not a five-minute Google session before going in? Nothing. Nothing, okay. Nothing. So you just rely on your, I guess, presentation skills, observing, looking at details, textures, colors, which I guess I am pretty good at because I I, I just love the arts. So, you know, I did by bit. It wasn't great, but they (laughs) took me in anyway. And it's an eight to nine month program. It's two days a week and you have presentations to prepare, research to do, and it's just fascinating. It just opened a whole world to me. Little by little, I started actually realizing that it wasn't the knowledge that I liked so much. When I started guiding, I realized what I loved was talking to people and it was that conversation and the way they would look at things and the questions they would ask themselves, ask me, and just opened up a whole new world for me. And then, well, I researched a lot of special exhibitions through the years when we still had them, haven't had (laughs) a proper one for a little while. I did that. And then after five years, I thought, hmm, I'd really like to meet some new people. Going through a rough patch at the time, my mom was really sick, and I started the NMS program, so National Museum of Singapore. I thought, well, I've learned a lot about the the, the cultures of Asia, but now I'd love to know a bit more. I knew the basics, but I wanted to go in a little bit more in depth. Uh, with respect to Singapore and Singapore's history. Then I went through another training program for the National Museum. Was the uh, recruiting process as intense with as many uh, applicants? I, I had built up my confidence yeah. a little bit, oh, and your... <laughs> I had done a bit more research. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was interviewed on the Singapore Stone, and ah. I knew the Singapore Stone, so yeah, I wasn't as lame as the first interview. Have you managed to keep up? With both museums so as well both, as new... So not both, unfortunately, uh, yeah. not both. You have to give a certain number of tours to keep your status as an active docent. And I haven't managed to do it this year for NMS. I had I to kind of decide right. which museum, having this full-time job. So I tried to do it to guide during the school holidays and when I have a little bit of time. It must have been challenging during the pandemic, during COVID, to have access to the amount of people visiting 
Yes. So when they were closed, of course, it didn't count. But when they were open, sometimes guiding was not allowed. There were other ways to contribute. We had online presentations, online research. So, you know, those kind of things also counted. There's a lot of ongoing training. It's a fabulous organization, all volunteer-based, but just amazing. That does sound interesting. I didn't know that. Did you ever tour groups of children? And did you ever tour groups of children from IFS or previously LFS? Yes. Yes. You did? Yeah. Okay. I did, yeah. Always in English, though. When so the for, French the, kids... for the French kids, it's in French. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. Well, NMS as well. I did NMS with French kids for the primaire, yeah, in French as well. Wonderful. It's actually a little tricky because when you're trained in, to guide one thing <laughs> in one language, actually, you're lost for words. More. I can understand yeah. that. Mm. Um, language is so linked to the culture, too. So when you get mm. the specific language that's attached to the culture of whatever artifact or event or thing, yeah. it must be difficult to adjust. You do a lot of things here with the students at the media center. In terms of Red Dot, there are a lot of activities that you coordinate with other media specialists around the island. What kind of connection do you have with other schools and how does that work? The French school is part of this network of international schools, librarians. It's a fabulous network. One of my roles from the beginning, it was very clear, uh, being the only English speaker, that I was going to be in charge of maintaining that involvement. So there are meetings throughout the year. We exchange a lot of information. We give each other <laughs> books to read throughout the year and then we come up with this selection of eight books but we actually have to read a lot more books during the year to decide on these eight books that end up making the red dot book awards selection and they're fabulous people we also do some social activities when we can during covid it was a bit harder they're just really really very resourceful and whenever i have a question about something you know we have whatsapp groups and Sometimes they're extremely enthusiastic, and I I think I already told you last summer, since a lot of people could not travel, they decided we could, if we wanted to, meet weekly to discuss the eight red dot books per age category. So as you know, I do the older category, which is sixième and cinquième, but also do the quatrième and older category, even though we don't have a lot of students that are doing that. They're still at eight books, so a total of 16. Most other libraries, there's two different librarians right. doing that. So I was part of both study groups or book groups. And so it kind of got intense. Right. Yeah. And after the first month, I said, okay, I'm, I'm going to have to take a break because I need a, a, a vacation. <laughs> <laughs> That's, I understand. I understand. Wow. And so as far as taking a break outside of school and your professional background, are, are there any other well, secret I, passions not, that you not, like not to so, tell us about? Not so secret. No. I, I, I paint, I draw. Oh, you uh, do? Yes. Tell us about that. Mm. And can we see? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I could, I could show you some things. Obviously um, not on a podcast, but yeah. I mean, if you can give us a link to anything, we could take a look at. But sure. Tell us about what, what, what type of painting do you like to do? I do a bit of, of everything, but I think in Singapore, I, I did quite a bit of portraiture, so portraits. I think it's linked to learning about different cultures and traveling around the region. I took a lot of pictures and I was just then inspired to paint a lot of the kids, actually. I love kids. 
you know, as you know. And so I started painting uh, a lot of them. I did a whole series of children of, of Asia, and I exhibited a little bit, not so much. I'm not that great at marketing right. myself, but, you know, I have a little art studio at home, and it's my happy place. Do you publish any of your images anywhere, like on social media, or are there places um, where... We could take a look without scheduling an appointment and knocking on your door on the weekend, which Um, I'm sure we'd be happy to do also. I I have a blog. Yeah, I could give you a link. We'll put a link in the description. I'd love to take a look at that. It's so important to have something outside of uh, work. It's great that we love our jobs so much that work is such a big part of our lives, but it's nice to be able to disconnect and have something for ourselves. You say you like music as well. We always talk about music a little bit on Parkour Ed because it is the original language as far as I'm concerned, and most people agree. And the idea of having an ear for language, uh, oftentimes people who have an ear for language have an ear for music, too. That's right. But obviously everyone is capable of foreign language mastery as well as music, too. But it's just the experiences that you have when you're young that lead you to... Well, I thought that I would have children that would all have a a good ear. (laughs) (laughs) They all speak English very well. They all speak English very well, but apparently one of my children did not have an amazing ear. He plays the saxophone, and he had this amazing saxophone teacher who said to him, you have to be able to train this ear, and we will get you there. And he did. It took a while. It took almost two years, but he got him to be able to recognize notes and plug it by ear. And it's just fascinating to me. I find that in in any area, whenever someone has a natural facility, something comes very easily. That's like a gift, but oftentimes it can limit how far you can go. And sometimes when people have an obstruction at the beginning, something that holds them back, if they learn how to overcome it, then they keep using those strategies to overcome. And they can go far beyond the person with a natural talent, you know, the natural lucky draw of being able to hear it right the first time when you learn how to do it. And so that's one of the things that I love about teaching, the challenges that you face with your students and that they face and watching it go beyond. That's the best. Yes, helping them overcome their challenges. It's amazing. And one of the things I love about working in the library is that you can connect with children over so many different things. It can be something that they're curious about and they come and they do research and they want to know more. It could be art, for instance, with the Red Dot book awards i love to have this illustration competition because some kids who are not necessarily the best readers will still connect with a book and express it in a visual way artistic way and then you can get them to talk about the book through their illustration and that's just uh, amazing to me they come to you once you gain their trust they come to you for other challenges in life and yeah i just i really really love that that aspect and what do you see in the future well, probably Europe. Yep. We'd go back back to Europe. Where exactly? I'm not sure, but right. probably Europe. My husband in particular would like to be back in Europe. I feel more like a citizen of the world. Yeah. I don't think that I would exclude anywhere, really, to retire. For me, it's more about the things that you love to do and the community that you have around that. 
Never thought coming to Singapore that, for instance, the museum's community of docent would be so rich and so amazing. And I've connected with people from very different backgrounds, very different cultures. And because we have that love for arts, you feel very, very close to each other beyond people maybe from your own culture. It's quite amazing. And I feel really international. And if it was my own choice, I'm not sure I'd be so keen to go back to Europe. I, you know, I loved living in the U.S. We go back a lot. My kids used to go to camp in the U.S. Every summer we would spend the summer in the U.S. I could go anywhere. I, I love Southeast Asia, obviously, and I've never done exploring. So I'd like to thank you, Claude Chassab, for coming in and sitting down with me for this episode of Parkour Ed, where we talk to people of the IFS community to get to know how they got here. Thank you for having me. Bye now. Thanks for listening to Parkour Ed with Colin Daly. If you have any comments or feedback, feel free to email me at cdaily at ifs.edu.sg. And if you liked Parkour Ed, please share it with your friends. Until next time, bye now. <laughs>